0: And let me ask the rest of you to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 5. We continue our study through the gospel according to Mark from Mark chapter 5 verses 21 to 43. This completes the section of Mark where he's been highlighting the surprising power of Jesus first over nature and then over the spiritual forces of evil And now he highlights Jesus' power over both disease and even death itself. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43 says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus And came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray together. Lord, as we approach the holy ground of your word yet again this morning, we pray for your help. We pray that you would help our sinful hearts to focus on you. Pray that you would help our sinful hearts to be humbled before you. We pray that you would help our sinful hearts to grow in our trust for you. As we see this demonstration of your power, Lord, we confess the temptation to be accustomed to these things, to see this as more so a story recorded in a book, albeit a true story, but a true story recorded in a book rather than what it really is, a revelation of who you are. Remind us, Lords, these are not just words that account what happened, but these are words that tell us who you are even now. We could never be low enough before you and before your word. But we pray that you would lay us low this morning. And we pray that as we exercise the faith that you have given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that even as we are laid low, our hearts would exalt. We confess, Lord, that we don't always believe that you could do something about a hopeless situation. We confess that as we live life, we lose, often lose a childlike faith that maybe can't reason why you would be able to do things, but simply trust that you can. We confess to you a a certain cynical attitude that can accompany our lives as we live in a fallen world, as we're battered by the waves of doubt, as we're struck by the winds of terror in a fallen world as we see bad things happen all around us all the time and even as those bad things happen to us. We are tempted to ask, just like the disciples did, Lord, don't you care? Remind us that you do. Teach us not to look at our circumstances, but to look at you Teach us as we look at your actions to trace them back to your person. Teach us to treasure you, Lord. Lord, where there is pride in our hearts thinking that we already do, we pray for forgiveness. Certainly we do treasure you to varying degrees, but we could never treasure you enough. So as we Behold your glory in the pages of your word. Help us. Jesus, you said, apart from you, we cannot do anything. The truth is, Lord, this morning, we cannot even listen to your word apart from your help. We certainly can't be affected by it. We certainly can't bear fruit from it unless you help us. But we know when we ask for your help, We're not making a vain request. We're not bugging you. You love to invite your children into your help. You love to stoop down and help us in our need. So show us that again, Lord. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say together today, Lord, speak, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obeys him? These were the words of the disciples, not just a few verses ago as we closed out John or Mark chapter 4 as the disciples witnessed the raw power of Jesus to quiet the storm and to still the waters by the mere word of his command who is this it's a question that Mark is keenly interested in answering for us even as he has continued to unfold for us throughout his testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ to answer that Key primary question Who is this? He has answered it to us by showing us the matchless power of Jesus. Who is this that can calm a great storm the very moment that he speaks to it? Who is this that can calm a great storm inside of a man as he is possessed by a legion of demons by the very voice of his command? And completely transform that man's life. Who is this that holds the power over disease and death itself? Who is this? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? It was the question that the disciples asked one another. A question that they certainly continued to wrestle with. But you know what? the very same question that disciples today continue to wrestle with. Not as though we don't know the answer to the question itself, this is Jesus, the very Son of God. But because we realize as we continue to dive into the answer to that question as we continue the adventure that it is to ask that very question who is this we realize that the question cannot be answered simply and it certainly cannot be answered even in one lifetime we realize that the question regarding jesus who is this is a question that begins the adventure of knowing god And we realize that the deeper we go into the knowledge of God, the more we realize he is not like us. We realize the deeper that we go into the knowledge of God and the more seriously and humbly and profoundly we ask that question, who is this? We are laid low before him. Who is this? Well, this morning we will see him as the one who can take your burdens and always cares. We will see him as the one who always has time for you and is even, you might say, interruptible. We will see him as the one who can heal disease. We will see him as the one who is not primarily interested in giving you something but is primarily interested in giving you his very self. We will see him as the one who encourages you when your faith falters. We will see him as the one who is unfazed by the laughter of fools who don't believe in him. We will see him as the very one who raises the dead. That, and so much more, is who Jesus is. So then let me ask you, can you trust him? You notice I didn't ask you, do you trust him? I ask you, can you trust him? Can you trust the one who stills the storm in a moment? Can you trust the one who drives out demons in a word? Can you trust the one who heals disease? Can you trust the one who takes a little dead girl by the hand and says, daughter, get up. Can you trust him? It's maybe a silly question to ask in this context, isn't it? I'm not preaching on the street right now to people who don't go to church, to people who don't know who Jesus is. I'm talking to people who are here in a church setting. Maybe it's a silly question to ask, can you trust Jesus? But let me ask you another set of questions. do you ever wrestle with anxiety? Can you trust him? Do you ever wrestle with fear? Can you trust him? You see, what we need to understand is the Bible continually connects these dots for us, and yet, as we live our lives before the face of God we we are most often tempted to disconnect those dots we say yes I trust Jesus but at the very same time we lay awake at night worrying about all the things that we don't actually trust Jesus about why do we do that it traces back to that key question of the disciples who is this why do we do that Because we need to know him more. We do that because he exposes to us through those doubts, through those worries, through those struggles, through those fears, through those anxieties. He exposes to us in his gracious, loving way that those are the very areas in which we need to trust him more fully. So I ask you again, can you trust him? If this is the power that Jesus has, is he not trustworthy? I know what you're thinking, or at least most of you. Yes, he's trustworthy. Then why do I still struggle sometimes? It's the plight of the Christian life, isn't it? Yes, I trust him. Yes, I'm a child of God. I know I don't trust him perfectly. I know I still sin, but at the very same time, I have these areas of my life where I just can't seem to get it together. Let me suggest to you, my friend the reason that you can't seem to get it together is because you're trying to do it on your own terms and in your own ways. And perhaps even you use the Bible to do it. You see, we are often tempted to, without knowing it, of course, but we're often tempted to and we often practice the exercise of using the Bible as though it is a self-help guide designed with me in mind. We rightly condemn prosperity gospel. We rightly mock the false teachers who twist the Bible into making it all about your best life now. We, we rightly know that's wrong and yet so often we live as though we believed the very same things. Could it be that your struggle has been given to you by God himself so that your struggle could show you that not only can you trust jesus but you must trust jesus and because you must trust jesus you can trust jesus the role that the bible plays in our lives is so crucial not because primarily because it tells you what to do and shows you how to live it does do that but the role the Bible plays in our lives is so crucial because it shows you who God is. And until you get a right humility before God, you can try all the practical principles the Bible lays out for you, but it won't work. Before Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7, to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, he tells you before that, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. How do I humble myself under the mighty hand of God? I have to see his mighty hand. I have to see who he is. I have to ask myself that question over and over and over again. Who is this? And it is in the answer to that question. It is in the very revelation of God himself that you will find who this is. And you will find the key to living before him in a way that not only pleases him but in a way that satisfies you more deeply than anything else you could ever imagine. This is what Mark aims to show us this morning. In this particular passage, Mark aims to show us that Jesus can be trusted even when you think all hope is lost. You'll notice that he begins the story with Jairus and his daughter, and then he ends the story with Jairus and his daughter, but he interrupts that story in the middle with what's often called a Markin sandwich. We've talked about it a little bit before. I'm sure you remember it quite well. He interrupts the story with another story, a story that was designed by Jesus to teach Jairus and to teach us. That belief in Jesus is what most satisfies him. That belief in Jesus is what he is looking for. Jairus needed to learn that lesson. Because the moment of urgency, his, his daughter being on death's door, was interrupted. Jesus had agreed to go and heal her, but it was interrupted by a woman who had had a disease of bleeding for 12 long years. And you can just picture this anxious father whose daughter is dying, who has already pled with Jesus, help! And is now escorting Jesus back to his house while crowds throng around him. You can just picture this man thinking, Jesus, why are you stopping? She's dying! And yet Jesus doesn't flinch. Because Jesus wanted to teach Jairus. And Jesus wants to teach us that not even death itself has the power over Jesus. And that what Jesus wants most fundamentally is for us to trust him even when it appears that all hope is lost. And so as we see that lesson then in this story we see highlighted for us three expressions of genuine faith that, it, faith that encourage us to hold on to Jesus. We are this morning, and even as we study the gospel of Mark, as you study your Bibles, no matter where you are, we are to be constantly asking the question, who is Jesus? Not first, how am I supposed to live for him? But who is Jesus? And then how do I live in light of who he is? And the fundamental reality is, when I understand who Jesus is, the way that I live in light of who he is, is to simply trust him. So this morning then, three expressions of genuine faith that encourage us to hold on to Jesus. These folks give us a wonderful example of what it is to look to Jesus, to be committed, to be resolved, to trust Jesus, even when the world laughs at you, even when your faith itself wavers. They show us how to walk with Jesus. So first of all, this first expression of genuine faith that encourages us to hold on to Jesus is found in verses 21 to 24, and it is this. Faith in Jesus means taking our concerns to him. Faith in Jesus means taking our concerns to him. Verses 21 to 24. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So Mark reminds us of the setting. Jesus was first on this side of the Sea of Galilee, and then he told his disciples to cross with him where they met a storm that Jesus conquered, and then as soon as they got to the other side in the Gentile land, they met a demoniac that Jesus conquered. The town kicked him out. The demoniac went and preached the gospel, and everyone was amazed, and Jesus departed that land and came back to the other side. And now he's back into Jewish territory, likely back to just outside of Capernaum, where a crowd is once again waiting for him, perhaps even the very same crowd that he left in the first place. But Mark wants us to focus in on one particular person in this crowd, and it's a person of high standing. Verse 22 says, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Mark wants us to understand who this was and what he was. This was no ordinary man. This was no average peasant within the crowd. This was a ruler of the synagogue. This was a man who had power, who had prestige, who had position within the community. This was a man who, if he said, make a hole," they would part the crowd so that he could get to Jesus. And notice then what he does, this man of power. He sees Jesus, verse 22 finishes, and he falls down at his feet. This man of power, this man of position, this man of prestige recognizes a greater power than he. A man who didn't look as though he should have any power, didn't dress as though he had any power, made no means to show his status except for by speaking and teaching and healing and driving out demons and yet of the very man who would still mix with the common folk. Jairus comes to him in total desperation and verse 23 says he implored him or he begged him it was this very same word that was used back earlier in Matthew or in Mark chapter five, four different times, where the demons begged him twice not to bother them. The town begged him not to come into it anymore, but to leave, and the man whose life had been transformed had begged him to go with him. Now Jayrus comes begging Jesus, imploring Jesus, and he's doing so earnestly, because that's the way you beg. And most especially, that's the way you beg when your daughter is dying. He says to Jesus, as he sits there on his knees, perhaps he looks at Jesus in the face, perhaps he looks down at the dust. But he says to Jesus, my little daughter is at the point of death. He says to Jesus, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. We weren't there. We didn't see it. We didn't hear it. But we can relate with this desperation, can't we? The reality is that in a fallen world, death touches every one of us. And every time it touches us, it stings us in a way that nothing else stings. And so this man is at his wits' end. Perhaps he had heard Jesus teach before. Most likely, it was the very same synagogue that Jesus first cast out the demon that he was the ruler of. Why did Jesus, or why did this man, why did Jairus come to Jesus? Well, notice in the purpose clause of what he says. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Why did he go to Jesus? Because he knew that if he went to Jesus, Jesus could do the very thing he was asking. What do we call that? Faith. Faith. And yet notice, he believes that Jesus can do it, but what is his life marked by? desperation he takes this desperate moment and he goes to the one person he knows he can trust the one person he knows who can do anything about it the one person who he has seen cast out demons and heal a paralyzed man who he's heard teach he's heard these other stories about what he's done he goes to that person and he falls down before him and he says lord if anyone can do anything here it's you so I'm asking come and touch her. And if you touch her I know she'll be made well and I know that she will live. He takes his concern to Jesus and verse 24 says to us simply and he went with him. He went with him. He didn't see the concerns of this man as a bother to him. He didn't see it as an interruption to his mission. He saw the desperate cries of a desperate man and he saw the faith of this man and he complied. What are we to learn from this particular section? We won't have the same experience as Jairus. We won't see Jesus walking the earth like Jairus did. We won't have the chance to fall down before his very feet and touch him and look in his eyes and speak to him face to face like Jairus did. But the reality is, we bear some of these very same concerns, don't we? We can relate with this desperation. Desperation. And although we may not see Jesus face to face like Jairus is, we have the promise that Jesus is with us always, even to the end of the age. And so we take our concerns to him. What does that look like? It's fine to talk about taking our concerns to Jesus, right? It's easy to talk that way but you can tell most especially and most clearly if you do this and how you do this by the way that you pray. How do I take my concerns most fundamentally and most primarily to Jesus? Like the old song says, take it to the Lord in prayer. This is what we see throughout the scriptures over and over and over again. Psalm 13, amongst other places, gives us a wonderful illustration of what it looks like to be this desperate and to then take this type of desperation to the Lord. Psalm 13 says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. What are you doing, Lord? How long, Lord? What's going on, Lord? Where are you, Lord? Lord? These are the very prayers that are in inspired scripture. And they teach us that this is the way that the desperate, the faithful talk to their God. So what does your prayer life look like? Do you talk to God like David talked to God? Or do you occasionally, once in a while, sit down and say, Lord... Please help me. I could really use you. Amen. Do you have times when you get away from everything else? Where you schedule in your time, in your, uh, where you carve out of your schedule time to just be alone with the Lord and wrestle in prayer with him? And maybe sometimes that's, Lord, I don't know what to say to you right now. I need you to help me. And then you just sit quietly for a while. And then you open up your Bible, and you you read, and you look, and you dig, and then you start praying again. Or are you just tempted to think, I know Christians are supposed to pray, but I've tried it, and it doesn't really work for me. The psalmist doesn't end with his questions to God. But he actually ends the psalm this way. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And doesn't that match Jairus' determination My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. I trust you, Jesus. I trust you. So we see, first of all, that faith in Jesus means taking our concerns to him, and we see that in correspondence with taking our concerns to him, that every single time we do, we find a Savior who will go with us. Who will not say to you, stop bothering me. I'm too busy. I've got other things going on. I'm answering someone else's request right now. Please leave a message at the beep. But we find a Savior who will go with you every single time. And do you know why that is? Because he went for you to the cross. Because he demonstrated his great love for you. And that he died for you. And he demonstrated his great power over death. And that he rose from the grave. So that he could justify all those who believe in him while we may not get the healing that we so desperately ask the Lord for, it will come. Just maybe not in this life. What does the book of Revelation tell us? In that place, he will wipe away every tear from their eye. They will hunger no more. Neither shall they thirst anymore. Do not ever let your timetable cause you to limit your view of God's timetable. You see temporally, he sees eternally. He sees the entire chessboard. We're just one little pawn on that board. Genuine faith trusts him. Faith in Jesus means taking our concerns to him. And secondly, verses 25 to 34, faith in Jesus means taking bold actions. The story is interrupted by another desperate person. This person does not get named. This person stands as the exact contrast to who Jairus is. And yet this person receives just as much attention as Jairus. The one who approaches him is a woman. Not a ruler of any kind, but a woman. And a woman, verse 25 says, who has had a discharge of blood for 12 years. A woman who has been, who has had a bleeding problem for twelve long years, and a woman who, according to Leviticus chapter fifteen, was considered by the law of God to be an unclean woman. She could not go into the tabernacle or, or the temple. She could not go into the synagogue. She could not have physical contact with anyone, even her own husband, if she were married. She could not sit in the same seat as someone, lie in the same bed as someone, because if they did lie in that same bed or sit in that same seat, they too would be unclean. The law made for purification practices, which a woman had to practice every month so that she would be clean and could then go into the worship of the temple. But this woman had been bleeding for 12 years. If Jairus is up here, this woman is down here. But I want you to pay attention to something. Jesus does not treat them as if Jairus is up here and this woman is down here. Jesus treats them on the same plane, with the same love, with the same attention, with the same grace, with the same power. Because Jesus knows what we so often fail to remember Everyone is created in the image of God and worthy of dignity and honor. Everyone is to be treated like they matter. No matter if society says they matter or if society says they don't matter. And so Jesus demonstrates the very heart of God in the way that he responds to this woman. Verse 25 and uh, 26 tell us about her condition. She had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She had suffered much under many physicians. Now, of course, physicians weren't the same as they are today. They had all kinds of, you could even say perhaps incantations, things that they were sort of home remedies that they were supposed to do. The Talmud gave them all kinds of ridiculous instructions about mixtures to mix together and drink and then words to say and things to do. There was one that says to have her stand at a crossroads and hold something and then sneak up behind her and scare her and then say, let this flux pass from you. It was just all weird nonsense. So likely she had participated in every cure, every known cure under the sun to these physicians. And as you know, when you're sick, everyone else has their own remedy. Oh, you have this? Oh, I know the perfect thing. Oh, thanks. Did you go to school to learn that? Or is that just, you know, your Google advice? She had experienced everything. And so Mark highlights for us that she was not just treated under many physicians, but she suffered under many physicians. And no one could do anything about it. And not only that, she had spent all that she had... She had exhausted every resource and she had exhausted her bank account. Not only is she unclean, but she's dirt poor. She's got nothing left because she sunk it all into health care. And then not only that, Mark highlights for us, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. Her condition not only didn't get any better, it actually got worse and worse and worse. The longer it went on, the more treatment she pursued, the worse she actually got. You can sense the desperation of this woman, can't you? Twelve years looking for a cure, going to the Mayo Clinic... Going everywhere possible, known to man, trying everything, rubbing all the oils and drinking all the teas and all of those things, doing everything possible, and yet, not only has it not gotten any better, it's actually gotten worse. You can imagine the woman might just throw up her hands and say, that's it, just take me home. I'm done. But notice what she does. Verses 27 to 28 display her faith. Verse 27 says she had heard the reports about Jesus. Mark has been demonstrating for us what discipleship is. And do you know what the first mark of discipleship is? Hearing. What did Jesus say? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This woman had heard what Jesus was doing. And so because she heard what Jesus is doing, she came to him. Isn't that what the one who can finally hear what Jesus does, does? Jesus, I heard about what you can do. I uh, come before you and ask you to forgive my sins and to give me a new life and to cleanse me of all my unrighteousness. You see these patterns over and over? This is not just what the woman does. This is what every single disciple does. She comes up behind him. You'll notice that most likely she she is so used to living at the bottom rung of society. She's so used to being ignored. She knows that it's not lawful for her to go into a crowd. It's not lawful for her to touch someone. But her desperate faith in Jesus allows her to put all of that out of her mind and just say, you know what? i might not supposed to be doing this. It's not something I'm supposed to do, but I don't care. I just got to get to Jesus. I don't care what it's going to cost me. I don't care if they kick me out. I just have to get to Jesus. And so she comes behind him. And she touched his garment. And in verse 28, Mark tells us why she did that. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. There's a lot of commentary and thought on did she kind of follow the The ancient superstition that powerful people had power even in their garments, so people would flock to Alexander the Great just to touch his garment, to try to get some of his power. Was that what was going on here? I think that's all silly nonsense. What's going on here is that the woman heard about Jesus, and so she came to him. And she thought, Jesus is so great. Jesus is so powerful. All I have to do is even touch his garment. And I'll be healed. What do we call that? We call that faith. We call that trust. We call that belief. And then we see the reward of her faith in verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Notice how Mark highlights for us what happened immediately. The flow of blood dried up, but then also what the woman felt, what she discerned in her own body. I'm healed. It's been 12 years, and I'm healed. Don't you love how Mark lets us in on the internal lives of both the disciples and Jesus? I'm healed. And what does the woman do? Apparently, she just tries to get away. Verse 30 says, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, the disciples pick up on the irony of the question, and they perhaps even rebuke him. They certainly question him. They say to him in verse 31, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? In other words, Jesus, everybody's touching you. How do you ask, who's touching me? Everyone is touching you. But Jesus knew what they did not know. Many people may have been touching him that day, but only one person touched him in faith. How did Jesus know someone had touched him in a certain way? Because power went out from him. Why did power go out from him? Because this woman touched him in faith. What is the gospel, ladies, in Romans study? It is the power of God for all who believe. That very same power goes out from Jesus to save a soul every time someone touches him by faith to say, Jesus, I believe in you. And so Jesus felt in himself that power had gone out because the woman touched him in faith. Jesus, in verse 32, is unfazed by the disciples' question. And he looked around to see who had done it. You can almost see Jesus looking around the crowd, who touched me? The disciples say, Jesus, come on, man, everybody's touching you. And he just doesn't even, doesn't even listen to them. He just flat out ignores them, keeps looking around, looking, 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 looking. Do you think Jesus knew who touched him? Why is Jesus looking around and asking audibly, out loud, so that everyone in the immediate vicinity can hear, who touched me? Because he demonstrates in this woman that what Jesus wants is not to give you something, but what Jesus wants is a relationship with you. He demonstrates to us that discipleship is not fundamentally about what we can get from Jesus, but about being in fellowship with Jesus. It was not good enough that this woman would sneak away. It was not good enough that she would perhaps continue to live in shame even though she had been healed. Jesus makes a public scene in order to affirm to this woman Have peace, be healed. And so Jesus continues to look around in verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him, just like Jairus did, and told him the whole truth. She gave her testimony to Jesus. Jesus I've been sick for 12 years, and no one's been able to do anything, and I'm dirt broke. No one talks to me, no one hugs me, no one even notices that I'm around anymore, but I knew you were here, and so I came to you, and I touched you, and I knew if I could just touch you, I would be healed. That's the whole truth, Jesus. There it is. And verse 34 gives Jesus' response to her, and he said to her, daughter, daughter, how long had it been since this unclean woman had heard that before? Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus wanted this personal interaction with this woman because that's what discipleship is. And although we may not talk to Jesus face to face, we may not get this kind of healing touch that would cleanse a disease that we may have from Jesus, but the reality is we get this very same intimacy, this very same personal connection with Jesus. That's what it is to be a Christian. That's what it is to know God. That's what it is to be able to answer the question, who is this? Notice what it is that Jesus highlights about the woman. What it was that made her well. It was her faith. Jesus wanted her to know that. Jesus wanted everyone else around to know that. What it was it that stirred up her actions in the first place? What was it that created in her the boldness to be able to do something she knew she was not technically supposed to do? It was her faith. What is it in the book of Acts that the disciples ask for when they begin to be persecuted? Boldness. They believe But they need to act in boldness, in the very boldness which that faith produces in them. Yet, in the example of the disciples in the book of Acts, we see that even that faith and even that boldness falters sometimes. And that it needs to be reinvigorated and strengthened. This is what Jesus does. This is what faith does. It does risky things for the sake of Jesus. So faith in Jesus means taking our concerns to him. Faith in Jesus means taking bold actions. And then finally, faith in Jesus means trusting him when all hope seems lost. Trusting him when all hope seems lost. The story then picks back up with Jairus. And you can imagine what he was thinking Jesus is interrupted and not only is he interrupted, but he stops and he takes the time to look around the crowd and to ask who touched me so that he can have this personal conversation with a woman who touched him in faith so that he can encourage her and tell her to go in peace and he can restore her back into the fellowship of the community. He does all of that. But meanwhile, there's a father standing there whose daughter is dying That father needed to hear what Jesus had to say to this woman because that father was going to need to apply that very same lesson in this next moment. That when he got news that his daughter had died and he should stop bugging the teacher, Jesus' word remains believe, believe. So in verse 35, then, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house. Some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? Apparently, they are not very skilled in compassion. It's right to say she's dead, she's gone, but I question if it's right to say, why bother the teacher? Just leave him him to be on his business. But it highlights for us something important those outside voices that come. Sometimes it's mockery, sometimes it's subtle bad counsel. Why? Why are you doing that? You should do this instead. But in verse 36, Jesus speaks up. It says, but overhearing what they said, or that translation could also be ignoring what they said. He did both. He heard what they said and he ignored what they said. Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Isn't that the challenge that the faithful meet every day? those outside voices that question why you would ever bother Jesus, why you would ever believe in Jesus, why you ever take anything to Jesus whatsoever. He's busy. He's got a lot going on. But Jesus looks the man in the face and effectively says to him, don't listen to them. Don't you listen to them. You listen to me. Don't fear, but believe. And this command to believe is in the present tense don't fear but keep on believing why does mark interrupt the story with the woman who needed to be healed because it teaches us what this father needed to know The faith that the woman had, the faith that she exhibited, the faith that got her healed in the first place is the very same faith that Jesus is now telling this father of a little girl who just died to have. And watch him work. Verse 37, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. We're going to see a little bit later next week, actually, in Mark chapter 6, I think the reason why Jesus didn't allow anybody to follow him, not because he didn't want them to see. After all, he had done all of his miracles in public so far. He didn't allow them to follow him because they didn't believe he could do it. And so he does not honor unbelief. He says, okay, get out then. You won't see what I'm about to do. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly because that's what they did. They would hire even people to weep and wail at others' death. And verse 39, and when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. Now these folks had seen a lot of dead people. In those days, when someone died, you paid someone or some ones, multiple people, to come and weep and wail at their death, most especially at their funeral. And so, likely, the paid mourners are already there and they're weeping and wailing and they're causing a commotion. And Jesus says to them, She's just sleeping. In verse 40, and they laughed at him. Why did they laugh? Because they knew she was dead. They had seen it enough. They saw the way your skin tone changes when the life goes out of you. They saw the way that that light in your eyes leaves your body when you die. They knew, no, this this woman's dead, Jesus. You're being a little ridiculous right now. You notice how quickly their mourning and their weeping turned into mockery. But Jesus remains unfazed by the laughter of fools. He puts them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and he went in where the child was. And Jesus commits an act then in verse 41 that would also make him unclean. That is, if it were possible for Jesus to be unclean. But we see that the holiness of Jesus overwhelms the uncleanliness of man, just like it did for the leper. Taking her by the hand, which was the act that would make you unclean. You were not allowed to touch a dead body. If you did touch a dead body, you were unclean and had to perform the ritual to cleanse yourself. But he takes her by the hand and he speaks Aramaic to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And you can just picture the sweetness of the moment. Grabs her by the hand. And when he picks up the hand, it's cold and it's lifeless. But then he speaks the words. And the power of Jesus infuses itself right into that hand and right through that whole body. And then what happens? Immediately the little girl got up and began to walk, for she was the age of 12. And immediately they were overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat, proving that this wasn't a spirit that Jesus raised up. This was a body that Jesus raised up. Give her something to eat. She's been through a lot. She was dead, but I've given her life. You'll notice that Jesus charges them not to say anything, and this, on the heels of Jesus charging the healed man, the the formerly demon-possessed man, to go and say everything. Tell him. Tell him about the mercy of the Lord, but Jesus is back in Jewish territory, where their messianic expectations are all crossed up, where they've interpreted their Bibles wrongly to be a political agenda for their own preservation rather than a Righteous revealing of the character of God and of how He will save sinners. So Jesus says, Don't say anything to anyone. But the reality is, the crowd knew there was a dead little girl in there, and now she's walking around eating food. What was the Father to do in this situation? He was to do the very same thing that you and I are to do when all hope seems lost. Do not fear. Believe in Jesus. Now does that mean that if we just believe hard enough all our diseases will go away? Does that mean that if we just believe hard enough we can raise the dead? Well some hucksters would want you to believe that but you know better. Does it mean that God can't do those things if he doesn't want to? God can do anything he wants to do. So ask him. Ask him in faith. If he wants to do it, he'll do it. If he doesn't want to do it, he won't do it. But therein lies the uh, crucial lesson for us when we come to things like this. Because the reality is, most often, when we ask the Lord for healing, it doesn't come at least not in this life. I've never asked the Lord to raise up a dead person after they have already died, but I suppose I could try that, but most likely it wouldn't happen. Not in this life. But this reality teaches us that it's not so much about what Jesus does as it is about who Jesus is. And isn't that the heart of discipleship? Jesus doesn't say, follow all the things I can do for you. He says, follow me. Christianity is a call into a relationship with Jesus. He may give us miraculous things that we ask for, and we should certainly ask for them. But he may not. And even if he doesn't, that means nothing about his faithfulness. We need to remember that when we ask Jesus for things and he doesn't give us those things, it's not because he doesn't care, it's not because he doesn't hear us, but it's because he has something for us in that. Paul asked him three times, Lord, take away this thorn in my flesh. And what was his answer? No. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness but Lord, I just want to be happy. I just want to be satisfied. What does the scripture say? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you want the desires of your heart, then you need to make sure that the desires of your heart are the things that the Lord desires and then he'll give them to you. So we learn what genuine faith looks like and we see even that genuine faith sometimes falters and it needs the continuing instruction, the continuing encouragement of Jesus. It's not as though to say, if you ever struggle, that means you don't have genuine faith. If you ever struggle, it's probably because you do have genuine faith. So keep struggling. But in your struggle, don't look for what you can get. Look for the one who has it all. We sang earlier the song, I know whom I have believed. Let me say those lines to you again. I won't sing them, don't worry. Let me say those lines to you again, uh, reading through the four stanzas and then finishing with the chorus. And I want you to hear them now, perhaps in a way that you did not sing them when we first sang them. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I know not how the spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. I know not when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair, nor if I walk the veil with him or meet him in the air, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we don't know the answers to all the questions that we have. We struggle and we wrestle and we fight and we press on, but we just don't always know. I pray that by your help and by the power of your spirit, you would help us to struggle rightly. That we would not mistakenly think that Our troubles are signs that something is wrong. But just as Peter told us, do not be surprised at the fiery trials that come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Lord, teach us to see those difficulties, to see our challenges, to see our hopeless situations as opportunities to trust you. When we can't do anything, when we don't know the answers, when there's no possible way that we could ever get out of the jam that we found ourselves in, let us constantly and continually look to you. And Lord, even if that situation leads to our own death, we know that it will lead to our life because of our faith in him. Lord, as we come to the Lord's Supper now, I pray that you would help us to take this meal in yet another demonstration, and even a deeper demonstration of our faith in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.